Well, the holidays are coming. You can see by the SDA's decorations up here at the front. And at the end of the day, the holidays are going to be a season for family. And I just want to encourage all of us. The Lord has blessed us with family. Some are easy and some are not. But he's put us there in their lives nonetheless. He's put them in in our lives for our sanctification so that we would grow and become Christ-like. And he's also put us in their lives that we can pray for them. And so I just want to remind you as the holidays get busy and things get busy, right? 20 million things that you have to get done that you didn't have to get done before. But let's not forget to love our family members. Let's not forget to pray for them to pray for their salvation, their repentance, their faith in Christ, their struggles, and uh, to place great hope in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because at the end of the day, He's the one who brings great changes and does things that we cannot do ourselves. And so we have this opportunity to hope for our family members in a way that unbelievers can't because Christ is at work in us and through us to do a good work and to bring a good light. Well, this morning we're coming to a new section of Matthew's Gospel. We're coming to the God-breathed words of Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, which we walk through, Matthew takes us through the genealogy and the birth of Jesus. And Matthew does this to introduce us to who Jesus is according to God's Word. This child of Mary, born in Bethlehem, and who's living first in Egypt and then in Nazareth, and is the one who is dragged from pillar to post, and is really rejected by men in many ways. Well, Matthew was showing us through this story and through this genealogy, and really anchoring this, really, and showing us how every step that Jesus makes has really been foreordained by the word of the Lord in the Old Testament. Matthew is showing us that this is the one who has been set apart by God. He is the one who has been set apart by God's word to be God's promised king who will save his people from their sin. This is who Jesus is. He's been set apart to bring his people out of exile and out of the wilderness and out of the darkness of this world and to bring his people into his kingdom of light. And as Matthew shows us who Jesus is, he's also showing us who believers are, who disciples are. They are these former slaves of sin who have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and have been brought in by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into His kingdom of light. It's a description of disciples that is remarkably different from what the picture of Christians in America typically are, or in most churches are. It's worthwhile stopping and saying, okay, is this my story? Is this my testimony? Is this what I look like? Am I the one who was formerly a slave and in bondage to sin, but my life has been radically changed because Jesus has taken me out of the wilderness of this world and the exile of this world. He's brought me through the exodus and through the waters, and He's brought me into His kingdom. And He has made me a child of God like Him. This is who Jesus is according to Matthew. And this is who His disciples are according 
to Matthew. And the good news of Matthew 1 and 2 is that according to God's word, this very kingdom and this very king has come. He's arrived. He is here. That's what we'll be celebrating in a few weeks at Advent. The first coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Matthew's doing this in part to prepare the disciples and those he's writing. Well, he's coming again. Are you ready? Because that's where he brings us as we get to chapter 3. Okay, Jesus is here. He's come. He is the Son of God. So what? So what? Does it make any difference? And does it mean anything? And does it change anything? Well, for some people, it does. But in actual fact, Matthew points out to us, for everyone it does. And as we come to Matthew chapter 3, God, through John the Baptist, answers that question, so what? How this king and this kingdom changes everything for everyone, whether we admit it or not. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to ask the AV team if we can show my first slide, if that's doable. And we'll read Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Years ago, I, was struck, I got stuck in a traffic jam on my way to work. And as I tried to make my way to work, not only... Were things had things come to a standstill, but at the same time there were rows and rows and rows and rows of California Highway Patrol officers. There were probably around 20 or 30 of them. And it wasn't until I got into work that I was informed that the President of the United States was making an impromptu visit to West L.A. to eat at someone's home in Bel Air and do a fundraising. And that was why everything in West L.A. had come to a halt. And that's why all those California Highway Patrol officers were there. They were clearing the way. And ahead of the president had come his team, including his Secret Service detail and all the local law enforcement as well. And they were getting everything ready. They were clearing everything for the president. And the general understanding and the implication of all of this is if the president was going to spend any time at all in West L.A., things in West L.A. had to change radically. It wasn't business as usual. For any of you who have had guests over to your home, you know, and for our kids, you know that when we have guests who are coming over, everybody has to clean their room. Right? We've got to get the place ready. When there's someone we love and there's someone we cherish and someone important is coming, it's not business as usual. We need to get ready. And in and through Matthew chapter 3, God shows us if His king and His kingdom are coming, radical changes 
or need it. It's not business as usual. And this is, brothers and sisters, so contrary to American Christianity in our churches where it's check-in, children's ministry, check-in, singles ministry, check-in, I check-in on Sunday, I come, and this is where my life goes for the next 30 or 40 years. But the testimony of Matthew chapter 3 is that if the king and his kingdom are coming and they are near and they're going to be present in our lives, radical changes need to happen. And sadly, we understand this for the people we invite over to our homes and we understand it for the President of the United States. But when it comes to Jesus, well, He can accept me as I am, no big deal. Just as I am, right? He's unconditional love, we're okay. But that, as we come to Matthew's Gospel, is is so contrary. Why? Why is radical change needed? Well, the implication here is because as we are... We're not fit to rightly receive God's King and His kingdom. We're not fit and we're not able. And we're not worthy. And brothers and sisters, this is the big truth of Matthew chapter 3, of the verses we've just read, but all of Matthew 3 as we walk through. Could I have my next slide please, AV team? This is basically the summary of where we're going. The reason John the Baptist comes is the people of God, the people of God, Danny mentioned this this morning, this is not, you know, the drug dealers who are out there, this is not the people, the pagans outside of the covenant community, this is Israel who John the Baptist is coming to, the people of God, the people who have the scriptures, the people who were raised with an expectation of the Messiah, the people of God need radical change to rightly receive God to rightly receive God's king and to rightly receive God's kingdom. Radical change is needed. And this is why after 400 years of silence, God sends His prophet to prepare His people. This is love. He's giving them an advance notice, a heads up. I'm not just going to show up. I'm going to give you a little bit of time and I'm going to tell you how you need to set things straight in preparation for the coming of His king. And so He sends this prophet who's known as John the Baptist. Literally, John the Baptizer. John Washer, Paul Washer. He is the Baptizer, the Washer. And that name by which he's known gives us a hint and lets us know the change that needs to happen. What's the implication? God's people are not clean. They're not holy. They're not right with the Lord. And so they need someone to come on behalf of the Lord, to clean them, to prepare them. And the implication here is they can't fix the problem themselves. They've been trying for 400 years, and probably really more like 2,000 years, and still they haven't been able to get it together or make it right. So God in His mercy and grace sends a prophet, John the Baptist. And it's worth noticing here, John the Baptist is mentioned at the beginning of all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he and his ministry are also documented by Josephus, the first century Jewish priest, and general and Roman historian. 
And it gives us some indication about how important John the Baptist is, both in God's Word, but also among men. He's noted. He's on everyone's radar. And in Luke's Gospel, we're given an account of John the Baptist from the beginning, his backstory and his conception. And if you watch and look very carefully, he is very, very similar. He's not the same as Jesus, but he's very similar to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, many will come in the name of Christ, but do they look like Christ and is their story similar to Christ? That's always the testimony, and that's the testimony of you and I as well. Do we look like Jesus and is our story similar because we're to be children of the one true God? Well, John the Baptist's story is very similar to Jesus. And one of the similarities is from birth onwards, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And here in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew's focus begins with John the Baptist's gospel ministry, which begins like a flash of lightning or a forest fire in the wilderness, with John the Baptist appearing suddenly in verse 1, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And it's in this way God begins to show us how the radical change we need happens. How God changes us. And how does God change us? It's not, brothers and sisters, by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. God shows us through John the Baptist's ministry that real and radical change that is pleasing to God begins with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It begins with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Can I have my next slide, please? This is our first point for this morning. The radical change we need begins with God's Spirit and His Word. The radical change we need begins with God's Spirit and His Word. It's not a work of man. Young men, that's why when we shepherd you, when we talk about change and repentance, we're saying, listen, if you never pray and you never crack your Bible open and you never listen to the Word of God or look at the Word of God, don't come and tell me you're repenting. Because you can't do it. You're here in the first place because you're here. This is the best that you can do. But the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the good news of God's Word, is that He brings His Word to us, and He does so with the power of His Spirit. And when it comes, it brings changes in our lives. And when it comes to making changes, brothers and sisters, very frequently our focus is on what we need to do. I've got a problem in my life. What do I need to do to fix? What changes and adjustments do I have to make? But from Genesis through Revelation, true change begins not with us. It begins with God's Spirit and His Word. We see this right from the beginning in Genesis. It is God's Word that brings light and life where there is only darkness and void. This, as we've seen, is a Christmas story. And it's worth remembering, brothers and sisters... Saturday night, Sunday morning. How do we prepare to receive the good news of Jesus Christ? How do we prepare to behold the glory of the Lord? Are we coming to church? Or are we coming to be with Jesus? And if we are coming to be with Jesus, what prepares our hearts for that? And we think about our children too. What prepares our children for their hearts to behold the goodness and the beauty of who Jesus is and His love for them, the one who dies on the cross and gives Himself for them. Well, brothers and sisters, it's 
the Word of God and the Spirit of God that prepares everybody in order to appreciate the goodness and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in verse 1, John the Baptist's ministry, as we see, it does not begin with baptism, even though he's called John the Baptist. It begins with the preaching of God's Word. And it begins with the preaching of God's Word by a prophet who is filled with the Spirit of God. This is what's implied in Matthew, Mark, and John, and this is explicit in Luke's Gospel. And no surprise, his preaching is very different from the consumer product we call preaching. From our street evangelism to our podcasts to our megachurches. If you were to use the standard, oh, many people say, we have expository preaching. And we put it on our website. And this is what brings a certain type of Christian who's serious about the Word of God. And yet if you use our definition of expository preaching and you hold it up, John the Baptist would fail. The Greek word Matthew uses to describe what John the Baptist came to do in verse 1, his preaching, is the Greek word caruso, which literally means to proclaim. This is not teaching. This is not exhortation. This is not Bible exposition. It's proclamation. Proclamation is to say the way things are, to give a message. It's the definitive calling and action, caruso, of the man who is called the Carex. And the Carex is the royal herald who has been appointed by the king to simply cry out or proclaim the king's words to the king's people. Why? It's because the words of the king are words of power and authority that change everything. The words of the king are words of power and authority that change everything. So in the ancient Near East... The typical story, and you've heard this before, of what the role of the herald or the forerunner is. There is a battle. And at the end of the battle, the herald runs before the king. And he goes to all the towns and cities that the king has conquered. And he runs through in advance of the king coming to the territories he has conquered in victory and in battle. And he proclaims, this is your king. And he is on his way. Get ready to surrender and bend the knee. And it's a life or death message. You've got two choices. You get out of town. You get hunted down and killed. Or you bend the knee and you surrender your sword. It is a proclamation with life or death consequences. It's the words of a prophet that tell who the king is what he is doing, and what he expects of his people. Prophetic word. And it's not hard to appreciate, brothers and sisters, this is not, in our definition, preaching. This is not persuasion. This is not teaching. This is not helping people understand. It is simply the proclamation of a word that carries authority and power and life or death consequences. And it always brings radical change. Why? Because of the one who speaks these words. No. It's the king. And it's the power and authority of his word. And we live and die by these words. So let me update this maybe with a bit of an example that you can understand. 
How many of you have ever been pulled over by a California Highway Patrol officer? How many of you have had the joy of seeing those sirens go in the background as you drive? I have, okay? As you drive on my way back from the elders' retreat, no less. Okay. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you drive and you see the siren go. And depending on the officer's mood, you hear that PA system. Pull over. Pull over. He's not persuading you. He's not giving you a lesson. He's not teaching you. He's not trying to help you understand. He's giving you a message. And it's going to change your life probably. And you've got two choices. It can change for the better or it can change for the worse. You either obey and do what he says because he's speaking on behalf of the state and law enforcement. Right? Or you can keep on going and live with the consequences. Either way, whether it's the ticket or the pursuit, your life is going to be radically changed. And I want to stop us for a minute and say, brothers and sisters, why don't we receive God's Word that way? That His Word is going to change you, no matter what. It's either going to change you for the better or for your worse. Your heart is either going to be hardened and you're going to continue to do what you're going to do and keep on keeping on. Or your heart is going to be changed and come to Him and receive mercy and grace and love and things are going to be made right and correct by Him rather than yourself. Either way, there's going to be a change that happens in your life. God promises in Isaiah, My word is not going to return to me void. But why do we give so much more esteem to a police officer? And we should. Than the proclamation of God's good news, the word. It's because we don't esteem the authority and power of the word that's been given to us. And we highly esteem the words of men rather than the words of God. To prepare his people for the coming of his king. God does not send a teacher. He does not send a salesman. He does not send an apologist. He does not send a motivational speaker. He does not send a visionary. He sends us a prophet filled with His Holy Spirit to simply proclaim His authoritative Word. And what is the authoritative Word that John the Baptist proclaims? Accept Jesus into your heart. Make a decision for Christ. Believe in Jesus. Come join our church. Join our church plant. Become a member. None of those things. Verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Brothers and sisters, God's word to us is not complicated. It is hard, but it is not complicated. And typically when it is complicated, it's because we've messed with it. The good news of God's word is that he brings us to the place where change can actually happen. And that brings us to our second point. And if I could have my next slide, please. God's spirit and his word require real and radical change from above. God's Spirit and Word require real and radical change from above. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, my mom made me clean my bedroom, clean the floor, 
and make sure my bed was made before I went to school. And as much as I grumbled and complained that there were other children who didn't have to do that, but mom, in time I realized, much later, it was actually an expression of my mom to love me by setting an expectation and a requirement that things couldn't remain the same in my room and in my little world. They needed to change. And they needed to change for now, but also for the long term. It was a kindness. It was a love. And brothers and sisters, this is what God is doing through John the Baptist. He's coming to His people, and He's saying, you must be radically changed. And I'm going to give you the help that you need to change. And that help comes through what's called repentance. Now, our tendency is to reduce repentance to behavioral modification. Repentance is something I need to do to fix my life, my marriage, my ministry. And we tend to treat repentance as a little bit like fitness or a weight loss program. And brothers and sisters, this is how we talk about it. This is the tendency of our heart. Oh, you know, I just I had a bad week last week. I need to repent. You know, I need to repent uh, about how I talk to my wife, how I talk to my kids. I need to repent about the work I do. Now, when you exegete what I just said, and we've all said those things, okay, the focus is on me, 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 and what I have to do. And that's not what John the Baptist is talking about at all here. And people get surprised, and they get frustrated, and they discourage, and they come and say, well, I I did everything God asked me to do. I repented, and nothing changed. It's like the biggest loser, right? You go on those projects, and you go on the TV show, and suddenly you lose everything, and you don't see it after the cameras. All the weight is back, and it's the same as it always was. And then we get upset with the Lord. But as we come to this text, and we see John the Baptist ministry it to the people of God, we see that repentance in God's Word is something very, very, very different. He shows us it's the very opposite. The repentance that John the Baptist is proclaiming is all about, brothers and sisters, a relationship. And it's all about a relationship with someone and something that is far greater than myself. We get into that tendency where repentance is about me, about what I need to do. But repentance, brothers and sisters, never happens in a vacuum. Real change never happens in a vacuum. And we forget, brothers and sisters, repentance is about a relationship with the God who changes everything. As we see how John the Baptist handles this term repentance, it's not about fixing a few habits. It's an event of having the entirety of my heart, my mind, my soul radically changed in its nature, in its direction, and its orientation towards something or someone other than myself. And that change, that 180, the complete change that he's talking about is in relationship, first and foremost, in relationship to God. And these are God's words. So the words that God is speaking through the power of His Spirit and through John the Baptist, He's calling His people to have a radical change in relationship to Him. And this is why John the Baptist doesn't just say, repent, 
He doesn't just say, okay, repent of that sin of pornography. Repent of that sin of talking unkindly to your wife. Repent of, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he draws that connection that you cannot separate repentance from the kingdom of heaven. Or the kingdom of God. And the implication here, brothers and sisters, as he says this, is the problem is not just our sin. The problem is not just our unkind words or our use of pornography or our greed or even our selfish desires. Our problem is that we are sinners whose hearts are sinful and defensive and opposed to the one true God. We have offended Him. We have a relationship problem. I never have conflicts with my wife. No, obviously we do. And, and when I come to my wife, if I come to her and say, okay, honey, uh, forgive me for what I did. Can we now move on? And you walk through and you discover, well, maybe everything isn't quite right. It's not just about the unkind words. There's a relationship that needs to be restored. There's hurt that has happened. There is damage that has been done. And even greater and worse than that, the problem is more than just the words. The words are the symptom. The words go to a root in my heart of sinfulness that I am living for myself rather than God or my wife. And that's why I use words that are unkind. Right? It's the fruit. And yet, our tendency with repentance is to go around and try and fix the symptoms And we're surprised that it keeps on popping up over and over again because the heart has never been addressed. A heart that by nature is offensive to God. As Martin Lloyd-Jones and all the Puritans would say over and over again, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The direction of our lives are selfish and loving of self and are oriented in the opposite direction of the God who created us. And the change we need is a radical change inside out in relationship to the God who created us for Himself. And to help us appreciate this, Matthew in verse 3 shows us the connection between John the Baptist's ministry and his message and the God-breathed words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, he shows when John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says in verse 3, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Well, what exactly is John the Baptist, or excuse me, Matthew, talking about with John the Baptist? If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 1. And we're going to read this portion of Isaiah's uh, prophecy, which John the Baptist fulfills, so we can appreciate it in context. Isaiah 41. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Think the herald. Okay, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. 
The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall, shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What's Isaiah doing here? Who's Isaiah talking about throughout this passage? Bear with me for a minute here, okay? And I think you'll see that there's a significant payoff as we consider John the Baptist's message of repentance and the beauty of what repentance is. Okay? Who, who's, who's Isaiah writing about predominantly here? It's writing about the Lord. Yahweh. God. Why is radical change needed? It's because of who God is. He is the Holy One. Verse 11 to 31. This is after we've read, if you get a chance to read it. He says, God is the Holy One. He's the Creator. He's the King. He's the Shepherd King. He's the King of Justice. He's the Savior King. He's the one true God. And what is God doing? Verse 10. Behold, verse 10, the Lord God will come with might. What's He doing? Who is God? Well, He tells us who He is. What's He doing? He is coming to you. Verse 5, His glory is being revealed. He's going to show you who He is. He's coming to bring forgiveness, salvation, reconciliation. He's coming to bring exodus to the exiles. And then what does He expect of His people? Who God is what He is doing, what He expects of His people in response. Verse 3, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, the wilderness was the place where what happened? I know, I'm getting you to do my work this morning, right? The wilderness is the place where the children of Israel wandered for 40 years. And the first generation dropped dead because they did not trust in the Lord. The wilderness is a place of thorn and thistles. The wilderness is a place that is barren. Where life is not easy, it is hard. The curse of Adam is visualized. There are not huge gatherings of people there in comparison to the cities. It is destitute, it is hard, it is a reminder that we are living in a world that is cursed because of Adam's sin. No life. The wilderness is the place where God brings His children after the exodus to meet with Him. 
in order to prepare them to go into the promised land. And they get an extended stay in the wilderness because they don't trust that God will save them and they complain and they gripe and their lives are filled with discontent because this is not what we want. Basically, they're coming and saying, God, you're not enough. We want the cities, we want the garlic and leeks, we want Egypt, and we're okay with being slaves there as long as we get the whistles and bells of the world. God's brought them to the wilderness so that they can focus on Him. So that they can see that there is no life and goodness and grace and joy in this world that has not come from His hand. And the fact that they stick around in the wilderness for 40 years and that first generation dies, it shows they're not going forward, they're going where? In circles, in circles, in circles. Because they refuse to accept who God is. They refuse to trust in what God is doing. And they refuse to do what God expects of them, which is simply to trust and love Him. And say, okay, God, You're our King. You're our Savior. You're our Lord. Your kingdom is good. You know what You're doing. We're going to trust You. We're going to walk with You. Even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death. And the reason when you come to Isaiah chapter 40, okay, in context, Isaiah 1 through 35, oracles of judgment. Oracles of judgment for a people who refuse to recognize who God is, to appreciate what He's doing, and to love and trust Him. Oracles of judgment. Right? We've been through this many times before. Isaiah 35 through 39, the failure of earthly kings. Even at their best, Hezekiah drops the ball. Isaiah 40 through 66, oracles of salvation. And we see judgment and salvation go hand in hand. And God is showing, when I come, there's going to be judgment. And if you stand with me, you will be saved. If you place your trust in me, I'm going to deliver you from your sins. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make you as white as snow. But if you keep on trusting in yourselves rather than me... Look around you at the wilderness and see what's waiting for you. It's a picture illustration. And yet oracles of salvation. Who is the Lord? He is the shepherd who comes into our cursed situation, who comes into our darkness, who comes into our world of thorns and thistles himself to get us. And he will change this world of thorn and thistles into a place of life-giving water flowing with streams and milk and honey. And he will transform what was cursed into blessing because he is greater than our sin and he is greater than our sinfulness. Brothers and sisters, this is what repentance is all about. There's two sides to it. There is sorrow and there is joy. There is suffering and there is celebration because when God comes... We will either allow Him to radically change us and become like Him, or we will reject Him, and we will continue walking and walking and walking in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, some of you know what that's like. I personally know what that's like. I've walked in the wilderness. Selfish ambitions, worldly ambitions, respectable as they may be. And you look back at that time and you see how merciful and gracious and how patient God is to us. When God calls us to repent, brothers and sisters, please listen. Because He's doing it in love. 
And he's showing us that the world that we live in is a mess. And we need his help to change us. And that's why John the Baptist's message is such good news. Because he says, repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he says the kingdom of heaven, kingdom, he's referring to not a territory or not upstairs. That idea of kingdom is the rule, the authority, and the power of the king. It's the kingship. It's the authority. It's the power. It's the rule. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or it's near, or it's come near to you. He's anticipating Christ is coming. He is here already. He is close. His kingdom has come. The power to change is being offered to you. And it's a testimony of just goodness and grace. Brothers and sisters, we can't change unless Christ comes near. There are thousands of refugees around the world. They all want to come to America. They want asylum. They want to be present here. At the end of the day, they can ask, they can plead all they want. Unless some form of American citizenship comes near to them and is offered to them, they can scream and shout, that's not good news. And so what John the Baptist is showing here is this is good news and there's an opportunity for change and repentance, not because of what we can do, but because Christ the King who can change has come and He's coming near and He's offering you citizenship as opposed to death. But brothers and sisters, unless we accept that citizenship by faith, by definition the day of the Lord comes and it comes and it burns with fire. All that is unholy, all that is unlike the Lord. And the judgment of the Lord will come. Brothers and sisters, repentance is not a lifestyle modification. It's sinful enemies living in exile who are willing to receive the offer of clemency and repentance and the forgiveness of sins from the King who has already conquered And this is John the Baptist's ministry and his message. And this is the fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah's prophecy. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to our last point for this morning. By faith in Christ, gospel lives reflect the gospel message. By faith in Christ, gospel lives reflect the gospel message. This message of repentance that John the Baptist is preaching, that's coming from God. It's calling for a brokenness before the Lord. It's calling for an appreciation and a recognition. We're not right with God. Our lives need to be radically changed. And there's only one person who can radically change our lives. And what's interesting in Isaiah is Isaiah, through that prophecy, is continually talking about Yahweh. He's talking about God. And that means John the Baptist is saying Jesus is God. He is the only one who can come and change. He's the only one who can reveal God's glory. He has come to bring salvation. This is good news. But it's good news, brothers and sisters, that requires a brokenness on those who are enemies of God. And so the preparation we need is a brokenness over our sin that can only come through faith 
in Christ. Faith, not in ourselves, but in Christ. The belief, He's the Holy One, I'm not. You see, brothers and sisters, every time we make excuses for our sin, every time we say, well, not now, every time we delay, what we're saying is, Jesus isn't the Holy One, I'm the Holy One. I'm good. I don't need to change. And when we have those patterns of sin that keep on going and keep on going and it's no big deal and we don't reach out to the discipleship group leaders and we don't reach out to the pastor and we're too embarrassed and we're too ashamed, well, I'm kind of embarrassed about it. No, what we're saying is, is I can do this on my own. I'm the Holy One. Jesus is the one who needs to change. But John the Baptist is coming and... It's interesting, as everybody goes out, they understand something's up. And the reason is they've been raised with these prophecies. They appreciate, okay, the kingdom that has been prophesied is here. You're either going to burn or you're going to live. We need to change. And brothers and sisters, this has always been what repentance has been about. It's been about a brokenness and a brokenheartedness about how we've grieved the Lord, how we've offended Him, and how we're not right with the One who loves us and created us for Himself. So we see in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, what does David say? In his confession, he said, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Repentance isn't about, brothers and sisters, what I need to do. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Real change, brothers and sisters, involves a brokenness that comes from God drawing near to us. And the way we participate and receive is by faith, a willingness to say, okay God, I'm willing to accept what you have to say about me rather than what I think about myself. Brothers and sisters, we tend to think that we are what we do. We tend to think that the man makes the message And we follow the words of men we admire and value, whether it be a president, a CEO, a motivational speaker, uh, an athlete. And we extend this to our preachers. And yet from the Old Testament to the New Testament, when it comes to the people of God, it's not the man that makes the message or the moment. It's God's message that breaks and makes God's men. It's God's message that makes and breaks God's men. It's very different from how we view pastors in American Christianity. And we're surprised when these men fall. And yet we've been so enamored by their giftedness and their celebrity that we fail to see. We've been following an image rather than the message of the Lord. Well, throughout the Old Testament, God frequently called His Old Testament prophets and its heralds to live out the message. And there's only one way you can live out the message, brothers and sisters. It's by faith. And so that's why when you come and you look at John the Baptist, and Matthew makes a comment about what John the Baptist looks like in verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Well, what's the point of that? 
Moses was a shepherd before he led God's people. King David is a shepherd boy before he's a king and he leads God's people. They live the message. And then you go to Jeremiah and Hosea and Ezekiel and Elijah and you go through the prophets and what God does is He calls His people to live out the message. This is what the Old Covenant was all about. This is why you worked six days and you rested on the seventh. Your life was to reflect the message as opposed to manipulating the message for your own benefit. So Ezekiel, he's got a lie on his side, right? He's got to cook his food over dung and make that Ezekiel bread that gets sold in our supermarkets that everybody loves, right? And you go and you look at it, oh my goodness. Barley and all these things over... Well, the idea is that judgment is coming. And the idea for Elijah, when you go to Second Kings and you see that Elijah is dressed in the same way as John the Baptist, that he wears a, a, a hairy outfit and a leather belt, and he has to wander in the wilderness in Gentile territories being fed, the purpose of that is God is showing my people who are of my covenant, they are living out the curse because they're not right with me. And he calls upon his prophet to live out the curse and yet he cares for him and he provides for him to demonstrate to Israel, you're partying with Ahab, you think things are great, you're living the big life, but this is the reality of what you look like on the inside. You're cursed and you're rotten and you're dying and you're only existing because my hand is sustaining you. You need to repent. You need to look like Elijah, not King Ahab. And when God sends John the Baptist looking like Elijah, how he dresses, what he eats, crickets, locusts, grasshoppers, which is one of the few insects that are kosher or considered to be clean honey, and he's living on the dependency of the land. While the rest of Israel is starting to prosper under Roman rule, Herod the Great, all of those different things, his dress, his life represents a message when people look at it that challenges their very hearts to say, why is he so different and what's the nature of this message? Judgment and salvation are from the Lord. And guess what? The people of Judea and Jerusalem, they get the message. They understand what's going on. And that's why it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And guess what? It says, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. Homologeo. Agreeing with God about what God had to say about their lives. Now, in the Old Covenant... If you had some problems and you had sins, what would you do? You go to the priest, you say, hey, I've sinned A, B, C, D, and E, what should I do? And you would give certain sacrifices, and they would say, if you're really bad, hey, you've got to dip in this water, and you've got to do some ceremonial cleaning, and then you could come in. You don't go out to the wilderness, and you don't get this full immersion baptism. So what's John the Baptist saying and what are these people doing? They're reflecting the message. And what's the message? The message is, hey, you're not the people of God. 
It's not just a little sprinkle, a little washing, a little sacrifice that needs to change here. You are actually God's enemies and you need to come in as if you were Gentile unbelievers for a complete conversion where you lay down the entirety of your life and you walk away from the entirety of your life and you come and enter into the kingdom naked and you bend to be made completely new. And the reason why later we're going to read that they talk about baptism for a forgiveness of sins, it's not that baptism forgives you, it's throwing yourself on the mercy of God and saying there's only one person who can save me, God, you have to do it. It's walking away from the entirety of that old life. And as these people do this, And they confess their sins publicly. They're reflecting by faith the message of the gospel. Only God can save. He has come near. His goodness and grace offers forgiveness of sins and a new life and a new start and a new kingdom. I hate my old life. I want nothing to do with it. I want the king and the kingdom. And that's what my life is all about. Brothers and sisters, do we reflect the message of the gospel? This is a message, brothers and sisters, for those who have been raised in the church. We think we're good. We go to Sunday school. We've got the... Scout's badge, we do all the things the right way, we show up, we serve, we do A, B, C, D, and E, and we have all these validations of assurance. But what God requires is a brokenness of heart and a faith that says, He alone can save me. I'm with Him. I'm with no one else. And that, brothers and sisters, is a call for all of us with John the Baptist's message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has at hand or it's come near. That in this day and age, Christ's kingdom is here. It's here through His gospel, His good news. It's here through the power of His Spirit. And it's here in His local church where two or three are gathered in His name and in obedience. And that's what a church is for. It's to come in and live out the gospel message in the local community. To say our lives look different and how we walk and talk and look. Because our lives have been changed on the inside. Well, have you received that offer to repent? Have you come to the Lord? Are there patterns of sin in our lives that it's there, it's there, it's there? Then we need to say, are you really living the reality that Christ has come near? Do you really believe that Whatever you look at on your computer, Christ is there watching with you. Whatever words you say to people on your job, Christ is there watching with you by faith. He is present. He is alive. And then finally, brothers and sisters, for the people of God, this is a message of rejoicing and hoping in the Lord. Paul, in Philippians 4, says to a church that are financially strapped, that are struggling, that are suffering with some persecution, and they're having a hard time getting along. What does he say in Philippians 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why? Our lives are garbage. Because the Lord is at hand or He's near. 
And for the believer, brothers and sisters, the reason repentance brings rejoicing, it's because there is the celebration of the belief, the truth, the reality that Christ, the King who changes everything and changes the darkness into light, is here with me. And that's the basis with which I pray and I come to Him and I draw near to a God who's drawn near to me. So brothers and sisters, we in repentance need to rejoice in the Lord. We need to celebrate and give thanks and jump for joy regardless of my job, regardless of my health, regardless of my circumstances. And I know that's hard and that's how we help one another. Why? Because regardless of what's happening... Jesus is alive, and He's near, and He's present, and He is indeed worth it all. Let's close the prayer. Lord Jesus, repentance is a gift from You. It's a gift that reminds us that You are not far away, but You're near. And the radical change that we need to be transformed... The brokenness of heart doesn't come through our own efforts, but it comes from a God and a Savior who in love has entered into our curse and our darkness to bring us home to You. In Your name we pray. Amen.